wife, someone would bring me a lesson plan, uh, I I did not bring mine up here. So uh, we're going to continue in our book. Thank you, Bruce. We're going to continue in our study of the book of John. Last week I taught in part John, well actually last week we missed, so uh, we're going to be looking at John 4, 31 through 38 by way of, of course, the feeding of the 5,000. And we had preceded, uh, earlier we had looked at the doctrine of the feast and the doctrine of witnessing. So now we're going to take a look at Jesus feeding the 5,000. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and use 1 John 1, 9 as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study Your Word. Now, I would ask that You would help us to understand all that we find in Your Word with reference to the feeding of the 5,000. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, here we go. John 4, 31, reading through verse 38. I think I'm just going to read the NIV. It says, Meanwhile, His disciples urged Him. You remember He was talking to the lady and the lady went <clears throat> talked to some other people. And many people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the disciples returned. And of course, that precipitated our study the doctrine of witnessing and then the doctrine of feast so now we're going to see what happens when the disciples return and they know it's time to eat and the Lord had not eaten as far as they were concerned so here we go meanwhile his disciples urged him Rabbi eat something but he said to them I have food to eat that you know nothing about then his disciples said to each other could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. All right, introduction. The disciples pressed Jesus to take food, but he decided on the grounds that he had nourishment of which they were ignorant. First, we studied how bread is used in Scripture. We will now explore the events of the feeding of the 5,000 by Jesus in John 6, 1 through 5, and I shall read. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. Same sea, just has two different names. Sea of Galilee, because it was in that province, 
and the Sea of Tiberias because the very important city of Tiberias was located on the western shore. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. And of course, he's up there north of Bethsaida, as best we can tell. We really don't know as a certainty where it took place. But it was a rather secluded place, and it was obviously a hilly area. And uh, he sat down with his disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near the Feast of Passover. And that's what prompted us to look at the Feast of the Passover and the various feasts, the first four actually, uh, we took a look at in detail. Now when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And uh, he asked, he only asked this to test Philip, for he already had in mind what he was going to do, obviously. But Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. And you can just imagine in your mind what everybody was thinking. What's he doing, you know, telling us all to sit down? But I guess let's do it, because we hear so many things about his miracles and the things that he said, etc. So they did. Jesus then took loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And there's a story behind that because you remember they did not bring the food and so they thought they were guilty and they thought that something he said later was not what he meant, but they thought, I bet he's talking about us not bringing in the food like we were supposed to. But that's another story. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So they partially partially did what they said. Now after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain beside himself, or a mountain to himself. So it's interesting to note that uh, they saw a miracle and they thought, okay, this is it, he's the guy. But uh, he didn't want a crowd to, you know, go burn the buildings down and and rob the stores. He wanted them to just relax and let him let the events take place that are supposed to take place. So he removed himself from the controversy. All right, bread, meat, and food are often used in Scripture, both literally, 
of course, for food to nourish, and they're metaphorically for spiritual food to nourish not the body but the soul. All right, for example, now in Scripture, bread can be found more than 300 times, and of that 300, it appears 75 times in the New Testament. And it's usually from a Greek word, brosis, B-R-O-S-I-S. Now let's return to Jesus and His teachings about sowing and reaping. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. He had been doing this in their absence as He spoke with the Samaritan lady. He now must explain the difference between that which enters the stomach and that which enters the soul. For you see, the Lord's ministry was one of both sowing and reaping. Four months till harvest would be a normal expectation if you, you know, in the natural realm, but by lifting up their eyes, the disciples could see a harvest already white and ripe for reaping. Now the NIV of 35, 36, 37, and 38 in John 4, do you not say, Four months more, and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now this certainly implies, and I think logically so, that there's been a lot of work done by others that we don't have any record of in Scripture. But many people have gone out there and sowed the Word of God and told about the Messiah to come. And now you guys get to reap the benefits. Alright, in spiritual work, sower and reaper are ordinarily different persons who rejoice together in what their combined efforts accomplish. Now here in Samaria and in many other locations, the disciples, although not the sowers of the seed, will perhaps later participate in reaping. You remember we have the scripture where Jesus says when the disciples said, you know, there's some other guy who's preaching over here in another area and he's reaping the vents, you know, many people are believing, etc. Shouldn't we go tell him to shut up because you're the king, you're the Messiah? He said, oh, no, 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 do that. You know, it's uh, let him reap, I mean, sow over there and reap or just sow, but uh, they're all serving the kingdom if they are indeed telling people about the Messiah and that He's going to come. So Jesus manifests Himself as sent to communicate to man a life eternal. The signs by which the means He now manifests Himself is. In other words, however, so new that many fresh aspects are disclosed. One of these would be the feeding of the 5,000, a new story, a new series of events. All right, the occasion for the miracle arose as usual. 
quite simply. Jesus had retired to the east side of the sea. And I provided a map for you of the Sea of Galilee. You can see Tiberius down there. You can see Magdala, where Mary Magdala got her name, Gennesaret and Capernaum, where Jesus had a home. And then you can see Bethsaida, and then somewhere up there around Bethsaida is where the feeding of the 5,000 occurred. Alright, uh, and then another famous story down there, Gadara, where the Gadarene was with 20,000, where the demons, you know. Uh, uh, and the tons of people that he would go and witness to. Here's another case which uh, is part and parcel of this story of some sow, some reap, some are doing it right now. Because you remember it was the Gadarene that he left there in Gadara, the area. And uh, he wanted to go with Jesus after he had had the demons removed from him. And Jesus said, no, you're to be my witness down here. So he went and told people about Jesus. So same thing's going on now is what I'm saying. Same thing was going on with reference to the disciples and they needed to learn and Jesus is teaching them. Alright, now then, many people eager to see miracles, that is more, followed him round the head of the Sea of Galilee, and as they went, their number was augmented by members of a Passover caravan. You remember we learned earlier as we started this lesson that the Passover was near, and uh, people were going into Jerusalem, so they had a caravan of people, busloads, so to speak. All right, uh, and they were already on the march. Alright, this pursuit of Jesus touched him as he watched him toiling up the hill in groups or one by one quite exhausted by a long and rapid walk, even mothers dragging hungry children after them. His first thought was, what can these poor tired people get to refresh them up here? So you can imagine, we've added a few things here about what Jesus saw, but little logic wouldn't help here. Because you know there are people who are coming, and there's no place to there's no there's no McDonald's up there to go to. So uh, he sees the problem, and he sees the hunger, and that's why he said to Philip, "Whence are we to buy bread that these may eat?" And Jesus said this in order, according to the scripture, to test Philip. It would seem. Apparently this disciple was quick to calculate ways and means and rather apt to scorn the expectations of faith faith, because he immediately came up with an objection, you know. We can't handle this, you know. So he was applying his logic and his calculations to the situation. And so a lesson there, everybody must rid themselves of the defects of his spiritual qualities. We all have our own genetic makeup and environmental stimuli, etc., that we've had or encountered in a lifetime, and we're a certain way. But when it comes to metabolizing doctrine, you have to become positive to the Word and listen for the lesson. So Jesus now gave Philip an opportunity to overcome his weakness by saying, We have neither meat nor money. But we have you, Lord. And I hope he thought that, but it's hard to say. 
Philip, like many others, missed his opportunity at first, seemingly being oblivious to the resources of Jesus. But he cast his eye rapidly over the crowd, no doubt. And he came up with the fact that he said that 200 penny worth of bread, we've already said that's eight months' wages as best we can compute, would scarcely suffice to give each enough to stay their immediate cravings. And then we have old Andrew who suggests that he had ascertained the crowd. And uh, yes, said Andrew, there's only one, I call it a sack lunch, among them and that in the hands of one small boy, you know, who only had, you remember, five loaves and two fishes. So these helpless disciples, meager in food and meager in faith, are set in contrast to the calm faith an infinite resource of Jesus. And I can just see certain leaders out there in their group, you know, authorizing or directing people sit here, you know, you sit over there and so forth, and then looking up there saying, what's he going to do? You know, what is he going to do? We hear so many tales about him, you know. Uh, they're anticipating. All right, so these helpless disciples, though, are set in contrast to Jesus Himself. Alright, and hopefully some in the crowd are doubters, some are not. But they're they're staying. Alright, the moral ground being thus prepared for the miracle and the confessed inability of the disciples and of course of the crowd. So Jesus takes the matter in hand. With Jesus' air of authority and calm purpose, which must have impressed all of those there, uh, he says, make the men sit down. So with the evening sun sinking behind, sinking behind the hills on the shore and the shadows lying across the darkened lake, the multitude is ordered to break up into groups of hundreds and fifties and seat themselves in perfect confidence. That's what he told them to do. That somehow food is to be served. So it took a lot of faith on the part of those sitting down. And then there wasn't rebellion. You know, like, what do you think you're going to do? But they've heard so much about Him. So they seat themselves as those who expect a full meal. Or at least some food, though where the full meal was to come from, nobody knew. This expectation must have deepened into faith as the hungry crowd listened to their hosts and I'm sure gave thanks over the scanty provisions. So he addressed the Father, no doubt, giving thanks for that which is about to be served. And then as he proceeded to distribute the ever-multiplying food, now that had to be something to see. It's hard to imagine how it happened. But it did. And ever multiplying food. And all struck silence soon gave way to exclamations of surprise and to excited and delighted comments. Now how all that happened, I don't know. We can only conjecture. Did it all start at the front row and work backwards or did it all of a sudden just start appearing out there in the crowd, you know? Uh, that would be my conjecture, I think. And then a little more conjecture on my part. What did the little lad think, you know? The little guy. And I said, the little lad, as he watched with widening eyes, 
his two fishes doing the work of thousands, could feel himself a person of consequence. It's his five loaves, you know, and so forth. And his two fishes. And I suspect his heart beat faster and faster as he rehearsed the story. He would run home and tell mom and dad what happened. You should have seen what happened to my sack lunch. And uh, wow. But our Lord was watching as the people ate with a smile on His face, no doubt, clearly enjoying the congenial scene. And probably several of the little children would come up and stand beside Him and want to get close and uh, maybe get their fish and chips from His own hand. You know, who knows? Alright. Our Lord had supplied the same and very plain food to all. No special orders. So in the crowd were men, women, and children, old and young, hardworking peasants, shepherds from the hillsides, fishermen from the lake, as well as traders and scribes from the towns. Galilee was famous, by the way, for having a very prosperous area. And like the good news of salvation, everybody was satisfied and appreciated the food. And so what God has provided for our spiritual life bears in it no peculiarities of time or place. In fact, it addresses itself with equal power to the Europeans of today, which we often forget, we think in terms of America, and nothing wrong with that, or to all the Asiatics during the Lord's time. All right, men had settled down by hundreds and by fifties. They are grouped according to families and Nature's taste. Jesus had something for everybody. But to all alike is Christ's spiritual food delivered. But if Jesus would have felt a deeper compassion for any in that crowd, He would have quickly laid His healing hand on any deceived person, no doubt, who could not eat. And so today He does still more deeply provide the truth and the life. But what Jesus emphasizes in the conversation arising out of the miracle on the mountain is that the food He gives is Himself. He is the bread of life. He is the living bread. So what is there in Christ which constitutes Him, that is the Lord, as the bread of life? There is, first of all, that which He Himself constantly presses that He is sent by the Father, that He comes out of heaven, bringing from the Father a new source of life into the world. As the Scripture says, Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father except by Him. Alright, now let's move on and see what we can learn from John 4, 39-42. As we talked about the Samaritans, Alright, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. Why, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know 
that He is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So we're going to see that He's moving toward Samaria, or into the area of the Samaritans. Samaria. And we have a map on the next page. So many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Him, says the NIV, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. All right, let's take a look at a point or two about Samaria and then later Galilee. But the Hebrew word for Samaria is Shomron, the central region of ancient Palestine, and it extends for 40 miles from north to south and 35 miles from east to west. It is bounded by Galilee on the north and by Judea, or note Judah as we call it, on the west, of course, was the Mediterranean Sea, and on the east, the Jordan River. The mountain ranges of southern Samaria continue into Judea with no clearly marked distinction. So now you have a map of ancient Samaria and you see Galilee and uh, he's later going to move to Galilee and go back to Nazareth uh, and you can see how he would have to go south into Samaria and the capital of Samaria would be uh, Sebaste, or as we would say, Samaria. And uh, ancient Shechem in the center of Samaria served as the crossroads and political center of the region. So you can see where Shechem is. Shechem was the, actually the capital of the northern kingdom after the kingdom divided under Jeroboam in the south. I'm sorry, uh, and, and uh, the north. And Rehoboam in the south. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. And Jeroboam was a, a up and coming uh, fellow who had done a lot of great work down in Egypt. And uh, Rehoboam made a mistake, you remember, when the people came to him and said, You know, Solomon was awful hard on us, your dad. And uh, what are you going to do? And. Uh, he told him, I'm going to be twice as hard. It's going to be a dark winter. I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of all the tax benefits that my predecessor did. Your guys are going to work a lot harder. It ain't going to be happy. It's going to be sad. And they said, well, in that case, we're going to find somebody else to replace you. <laughs> but instead they, yeah, well, they did. They went and got Jeroboam, who was that up-and-coming guy, did such great work down there in Egypt, and he became the king of, of, of again, the north. He made his capital at Shechem. Well, he had a problem because the in Judah they had Jerusalem and the capital and the temple, etc. Another story for another time. So ancient Shechem in the center of Samaria served as a crossroads political center of the region, and also the capital, by the way, of the northern kingdom, Israel as it's called. 
So at the time of the Israelite conquest of Palestine, the strategic sites of the region of Samaria were in the hands of the Canaanites. And you remember all the Canaanites, you know, the Amorites, the Midianites, the Jebusites, etc. And how God told Joshua, go in there and kill every one of them. And uh, it was uh, something they should have done, but didn't. They let some of them hang around. So although the Israelites were about to win the footholds in the hill country, some of the key Canaanite strongholds in the neighboring plains or valleys resisted, and of course they resisted until the time of King David. And then he, of course, made believers out of them. And mostly by power, military power. Alright, the region of Samaria was assigned to the house of Joseph. So that's to say, Ephraim uh, and Manasseh received the the uh, territory. Now after the death of King Solomon, which would have been the 10th century, the northern tribes, including those of Samaria, separated from the southern tribes and established a separate kingdom of Israel, which I just discussed and how that came about. Rehoboam and uh, Jeroboam were the kings. You had Judah and you had what is called Israel, or you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Alright, Samaria became a hotbed of evangelism under the ministry of a man named Philip. Uh, you remember Philip uh, had quite a ministry in Samaria. So I thought we'd read about that. It's, to me, it's a very interesting story. But because of the persecution of the church, particularly the stoning of Stephen, many Christians left Galilee and witnessed of the saving grace of Christ. One such man was Philip. Remember, we studied that before in the book of Acts, how when Stephen was stoned, see, Paul was being used of the Lord even when he was killing Christians because he was going places and getting authority from the chief priest back in Palestine, I mean, in uh, Jerusalem to go kill Christians. And so it scared everybody. And so they began to leave and to spread out all over the world. It's like we study all the time. Christ is working today and He's working in strange ways. Uh, he's using a man like Paul. He's using a man like Stephen. And so Philip went in the direction of Samaria. Many other people went other places. And the Word of God spread. The Word of the Christ spread. Alright, so again, because of the persecution of the church, particularly the stoning of Stephen, many Christians left Galilee and witnessed to the the people. And in Samaria, one particularly was Philip. So let's begin in reading chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. 
Alright, so there was great joy in that city. Alright, now for some time, now he's getting, he having a real successful ministry. Now for some time, a man, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and he had amazed everybody. All the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was, they thought he was someone great and he boasted that he was great. Because he could do a lot of demonic miracles, a lot of satanic miracles. So people high and low gave him their attention. In fact, they said, this man is the divine power known as the great power. And so they followed him because he had the miracles. Now naturally they were satanic in nature, but Philip is going to jump right in the middle of the whole mess and he's going to straighten it out. So all the people, high and low, gave him their their attention. He has divine power. So they followed him again because he was amazing in his work, because of his magic. But when they believed, because of Philip's ministry, but when they believed, what happened? All the people both high and low, who had previously called him the great power, Philip is going to turn him around. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere. He was absolutely astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw at the hand of Philip. Now, the apostles, of course, in Jerusalem heard about this, particularly Peter and John. And they were ordered to go over there. I can just hear James telling them, you know, you better get over there to Samaria and find out what's going on because what I hear is this guy Philip is doing things that we don't even do here. So I want you to go over and check him out. So he picked two of these really high-powered fellers, Peter and John. So they went over there to see what's going on. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now they're going to add something. We're going to add to Acts chapter 2 business. Speaking in tongues and other miraculous things. And when Peter and John placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. So when Simon saw that the Spirit, remember this is the guy who was demon-possessed and had become a believer. But when he saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands... He offered money. He said, hey, I believe I can add that to my repertoire here. I'll do these little miracles, you know, but the hands of Satan, he didn't know, I guess. I don't know what he knew, but anyway, I can add this to it and I'll make a bunch of bucks, you know. And uh, he said, I'd like to buy that, you know, because I think I can turn a dollar here, you know. And uh, Peter answered, may your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry. 
That is to say, the laying on of hands and the coming of the Holy Spirit because your heart is not right with God. See, here's a believer now. Keep that in mind. We sometimes think, you know, once you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you have the transformation, you know, everything's going to be rosy. Well, it wasn't rosy. So repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord because He will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. You got a love of money like I have never seen before. And then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So there's something that's been left out here that we're not supposed to know about, but we can conjecture. Some bad thing was said. This is what's going to happen to you. Because the Lord's not put up, going to put up with you much longer, buddy boy. So when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages as they went back. Remember, they're walking, you know. So they walked back to Jerusalem as they stopped at various places. So here again, the Lord's hand is at work. He's using Simon. He's using Philip. He's using Peter. He's using John. And uh, he's using us in America. And he used John Don, Donald John Trump, you know, and his wife to witness. All right, Jesus leaves Samaria and makes his way into Galilee. Now let's go to John 4, 43, 44, and 45. He's going to go now from Samaria. He's been, what, two days as I recall? Now he's going to go into Galilee. I think I got a map of Galilee there for you. So now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. That's when he was over there in uh, Nazareth. Then when he has, then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. So there was a big crowd down there and they'd seen when Jesus went down there. So we knew this was one of either three or four, probably just three visits to to Jerusalem that Jesus made. He worked mostly in Galilee, in, in, in the north country. Now the NIVs translated these verses. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. And I'd always tell my story about when we were in Art, Texas, and I'd made a talk and standing back with the pastor, Tommy and I, and uh, his name was Jordan, and they all said Jordan, and uh, everybody that came out the door at the back of the church said I'm so and so Jordan the next guy came along said I'm so and so Jordan and then I'm so and so Jordan and I'm so and so Jordan and this is Pastor Jordan and we're glad these people came etc etc and Tommy said well you know I bet you have a hard time you know with all these Jordans here and you're a Jordan because you know uh, no honor in your own country you know you just you're not honored in your own house or your own country or your own family because they know you so well, etc. And he said, that's interesting. Who said that? <laughs> and Tommy got to tell him, my Lord said that. But anyway, Pastor Jordan. All right, now let's talk about the doctrine of the Galileans. And there's your map. 
And so he's uh, went over there to Nazareth, as we're going to see. And let's get a point or two about Galilee. We've seen Samaria. We've seen uh, the northern kingdom up there above the Sea of Galilee and Bethsaida, etc. Now he's going back to Galilee. Remember, his home is in Capernaum. All right, there were thoroughly a Jewish people, the Galileans. They were Jewish. With few exceptions, they were wealthy and in general an influential class. If one should say the Jews were bigoted in religion, he would remember at the same time that in regard to social, commercial, and political relations, none were more cosmopolitan in either sentiment or practice than the Galileans. So the Galileans had many manufacturers, fisheries, some commerce, but were chiefly an agricultural people. They were eager for patriotism and courage as well as their ancestors with great respect for law and order. Alright, the Bible mentions Galilee quite often. Alright, John 2.11 This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory and His disciples believed on Him. And that was because it was prophesied in Scripture that that's that's what he's going to do. He's not going to be down in Judah. He's going to be up there in the northern country. And that's because uh, they will get to see a great light. All right, now then, 1 Kings 9 and 11. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees with gold according to his all his desire that then giving Solomon 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So... Once again, Solomon needed trees to build the temple. You remember David was supposed to build the temple and God said, no, but you can do this. You can get all the materials together. And we're going to see at the 11 o'clock hour how interesting that is because he got the nuts and the bolts and the blocks and the blinds and uh, the metals for the doors and the veil of the temple. He gathered all this stuff and I could just see some massive stock room that uh, David had. Had to be massive when we start talking about the temple, which we will. We'll have the doctrine of the temple at the 11 o'clock hour. Uh, I can just see that. And uh, as you read the scripture, it's the first thing that comes to your mind, boy, David got a lot of stuff. So he went up there to hire him and said, I need some cedars. You know, once you should chop some cedars. <laughs> All right. Now look at John seven forty one. Others said, uh, "This is the Christ." But some said, "Shall Christ come out of Galilee?" In other words, they were disrespected by those haughty people down in Judah. All right, in 2 Kings 15.29 it says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ion, and Abeth-Maakah, and Yahanoah, and Kadesh, and Hazer, and Gilead, and Galilee. All the land of Naphtali, the sixth son of Jacob, and carried them captive to Syria. Assyria, that was in 721 B.C. And that's when the Assyrians came down and attacked. And they took many, of course, and took them to 
Assyria, and they took many Assyrians and brought them down into Galilee, and thus became Samaria. The hated Samaritans, because they were half Jew and half Assyria, because there was this, uh, call it an acculturation, for lack of a better term, uh, of a new land, Samaria. And uh, Galilee, of course, being the land of the sixth son, Naphtali. All right, then in Luke 3 1, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, that's Herod the Great, he had been appointed by Julius Caesar, by the way. He had been appointed as Tetrarch of Galilee, more than one area. And his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene. Footnote, Herod mentioned above refers to Herod the Great who was appointed Tetrarch by none other than Julius Caesar. Alright, and we need to stop right there. I see we'll pick up, a little, learn a little bit more about Galilee next week. The Lord willing, the crypt doesn't rise. But uh, let's close her out with a prayer. Alright, uh, I would, of course, and should, recommend that anyone who is without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life will take this opportunity, be you with us on the website or the podcast, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not shall not see life but the wrath of God abideth upon him. So it could not be expressed any simpler than simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now I'm going to provide our benediction and I would recommend you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank You, Father, for the opportunity of studying. Thank You for the wonderful Scriptures that we've been provided. And bless our country. We're hurting, Lord, and we need Your help. So we look forward to what results You're going to provide for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.